scared of gardening if they haven't done it before. And you can start really small and you're still, you know, you're still gonna make a huge difference. Thanks again for tuning in today. This has been a really great intro about how we've incorporated the natural environment into the built environment of Denver. I know that these days I've been really appreciative of the parks and outdoor spaces that we have, and I hope that you've been able to too. You can help grow and maintain our urban tree canopy with us by signing up for a free tree at beasmartash.org or reaching out to us at forestry at denvergov.org. We're happy to answer any questions that you may have through that email or in the comments below. Thanks again for tuning in and learning with us, and we hope that this helps you to enjoy the water, trees, and life that you find in Denver. Dura has three programs we operate for the city. The single family rehab program, which does a, a lot of deferred maintenance and upgrades to a home. The EHR program, which addresses uh, an emergency issue, a water heater maybe that's gone out or something that will really cause problems for the homeowner. And our ramp program, which addresses access modifications to a home to uh, improve the um, ability of someone to stay in their home with a disability. When the city uh, scoped the sewer drain in our in our alley and found that we had a crack and uh, that it needed to be replaced. Take advantage of city services all that much. I try to do everything my own um, but this was one time that we just couldn't do it and I'm glad that Dura was there. You know with Dura everything was uh, smooth and it was you know, they had done it before. They knew exactly what they were doing. Um, and everything was done fair and it was quick and it was, it just worked. I mean, it really did. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful thing. I really do. I mean. If you're in need of our services, feel free to call our offices, 303-534-3872. Uh, Visit our website though, you'll find lots of information there. If you need help in any way though, contact our office. We can take you through the application process step by step and uh, explain every step as we take it going forward throughout the program. El es Pedro, mi papá, un hombre de los meros meros. No conoce la palabra miedo. Nada lo detiene. Y además de todo es muy fuerte. Pero ahora es más fuerte porque ya se vacunó. La vacuna contra el COVID-19 es completamente gratis y puedes obtenerla en cualquier sede de Denver Health. Para mayor información visita denverhealth.org slash vacunate o llama al 720-728-1294. to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of Denver City Council. The Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee begins now. Good morning. I want to welcome you to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of the Denver City Council. I'm your chair, Robin Kniech. I'm an at-large member of the City Council. 
and we have one member joining us virtually online. Please introduce yourself, Councilman Black. Good morning, Kendra Black, District 4. And members in the chamber, please. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver's District 2. Jamie Torres, District 3. Amanda Sandoval, District 1. Good morning, Amanda Sawyer, District 5. Thank you so much. We have several items for action this morning. The first is um, going to be presented by our Department of Safety, Greg Morrow, and it's the contract amendment. And so please go ahead and introduce yourself. It's item uh, 214, an amended contract with Core Civic to provide re-entry services. And uh, please go ahead and introduce anyone else you need to and present for us. Thank you. Good morning, members of council. I'm Greg Morrow, the Director of Community Corrections for the Department of Safety. I do have quite a few colleagues in the audience today, certainly um, team support from the Department of Safety, Deputy Director Walker, as well as members of the Denver Sheriff's Department, because part of my briefing will touch upon impacts that Community Corrections um, is having on Sheriff's Department operations. So as the chair mentioned, I'm here today to provide a general update and, and briefing on the capacity in community corrections, as well as bring forward an action item. Now, the action item is a request to amend the contract with CoreCivic to continue to operate the Dahlia Street facility for one additional year, which would take us through June of 2024, adding $2.5 million to the contract total, bringing the total contract to $7.5 million. I doubt that anybody needs the background, but you'll bear with me. I just want to remind folks that in 2019, City Council took action that required a transition away from private for-profit private prison operations as community corrections providers. Since that time, Department of Safety has commenced on a thoughtful and strategic transition strategy. You can see from the slide that we've ended the relationship with the GEO Group. We closed both of their programs in 2019. Um, the city was able to purchase one of those sites, Thule Hall, which I'll talk about more in a few minutes. We've also been able to separate from three of the core civic properties. The first being Columbine in, in June of 2020, Ulster in April of 21, and the most recent closure was the Fox facility in late 2021. This slide represents the progress made today. Um, and, and what I want to share here is that while we're not 100% of the way there, we're really close. We've reduced the, by 77% the number of beds operated by those service providers, going from 517 in 2019 to just up to 120 today. We've closed five of the six programs, which represents 84% reduction in the facilities those providers operated. Some of you might recall that the Department of Safety enlisted the help of a community corrections advisory group following that decision. That group was chaired by myself and community member Hassan Latif, who operates the Second Chance Center. Um, there were two council members on that, as well as a variety of stakeholders. And I wanted to highlight recommendation three from that work. Um, the first part of that was that the city should explore opportunities to identify additional service providers um, as we rebuilt our capacity. So now I want to shift a little bit with a quick update of what we've accomplished um, in addition to the closures of GEO and core civic programs. Um, I'm excited to announce that the city purchased Tule Hall. Um, we were able to reopen that in August of this year. Um, it is a 55 to 60 bed program for individuals who identify as female. We are currently operating near capacity. Um, it was the result of a competitive selection process. We did both a request for information and two subsequent requests for proposals. We ultimately landed on a model that's, that's innovative. And what I mean by that is we have both a city staff presence. So employees of the Department of Safety Community Corrections Office in conjunction with our community nonprofit partner, the Empowerment Program, are operating that program. And while it's premature to talk about outcomes because we're just a few months into the operation, um, I can tell you that the participant experience continues to receive rave reviews. Um, I included a quote from a participant that was published in the Denverite. It's consistent with some other media coverage we've received in the post. 
that really talks about there's a different feel and the experience in the program is positive. This particular resident talked about the program really is facilitating her desire to change. So again, I'm not gonna read it to you, you can see it for yourself, but I think that's the most meaningful way to describe that accomplishment. I'd also like to acknowledge that we've opened a men's program. Um, the Impact Center opened in just earlier this year in January of 23. Um, you might recall us talking about Embark. Embark was a 90-day intervention used to provide cognitive behavioral interventions for folks. Um, it was on the tail end of a five-year pilot when the contracts were canceled with the GEO Group. So the city stepped in and took over that pilot and brought it through its duration in June of 22. When that program was defunded uh, because the pilot was not renewed, we went ahead and decided that it was best to open up what we refer to as general population beds for men. Um, I wanna just publicly thank the Denver Sheriff's Department. They have been an incredible partner both during Embark and now the Impact Center. Um, Sheriff Diggins, actually turned over the operation of one of the buildings on the northeast side of the campus of the county jail, uh, building 19 to allow us to open the impact center. Um, in this first last six months of 22, we spent time changing the environment to de-institutionalize the bill as best we could. Um, and we certainly have implemented operational practices that are more normalized and support reentry services. So. While the building is on the grounds of the county jail, it is completely staffed by civilian operations. Folks are not in jail clothing, they're in their personal clothes. We uh, allowed them to have different sorts of privileges that wouldn't be allowed in a jail setting. So it operates more and more like a community corrections facility. And I also want to say that while we don't have a nonprofit identified as a peer partner, we are welcoming and do work closely with multiple community partners. Second Chance Center comes in regularly, so does the Dream Center and Lifeline. I wanna go back to that recommendation number three, if I could for a moment, and the, the other bullet point highlighted, recommended that the city explore the possibility of leasing or purchasing one or more core civic programs or, or zone properties. And I know that Lisa Lumley, the director of real estate is here. Um, but, but as a quick highlight, as part of today's presentation, later on this month, real estate will be bringing to FinGov a request to approve a purchase and sale agreement with CoreCivic to buy the Dahlia site. And its anticipated closure would be in early 2024. <clears throat> now I wanna shift to sort of the capacity challenge that we face. Um, what you're looking at now is the step-down process that we've undertaken since 2019. You can see in July of 2019, we had 748 beds. Today, we sit roughly at 383. Um, if Core Civic Dahlia closes in June of 23, we will be down to 263 beds, which represents a 65% reduction in our in addition to the closures of the GEO and Core Civic that were planned, we've lost two additional programs over the past four years. One was a dual diagnosis program operated by Independence House that couldn't sustain operations through the pandemic. Most recently, we've lost the ability to place women at the Haven. Um, the financial operating costs at the Haven are too excessive to balance what the state reimbursement rates are. So they've elected to move to a different model and just treat individuals with substance misuse under who are Medicaid eligible or who have other funding sources. So we have lost those beds as well. That loss of capacity has significant impacts on people and it has significant impacts on our system. Um, today, there are roughly almost 300 individuals that are incarcerated that have been approved for community corrections placement and are just waiting for a bed. 160 individuals are in the Department of Corrections, again, who are eligible, who have declared Denver as a release destination, who want to come to Denver for entry services, 
who have been approved for by our community corrections board and are waiting in a prison bed. They've been waiting there some as long as 12 months. Our direct sentence population, those individuals that are referred by the courts, most of them remain in the jail until a bed's available. Again, this is another impact on the Denver Sheriff's Department as they are working with folks, roughly 132 today, that are waiting for a Comcore bed, some of them over six months. So when we talk about that capacity and the challenge if Dahlia were to close until we can operate a different program, this list is only going to grow. Also on this slide, you'll see the impact, impacts to the BIPOC population. Over 60% of individuals awaiting a bed in the jail system are persons of color. So in summary, the request to extend the contract one more year allows us to prevent destabilization of our system. It provides opportunities for folks who want to be in community corrections and who have been approved. If it doesn't get approved, we're gonna see increased wait times. We're gonna see a loss of in-county services in a variety of ways, including the Dahlia is the only facility right now in our repertoire that will work with individuals who have been convicted of a sex offense. So we continue to lose specialized services as well if this program comes offline. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate your presentation. Um, we have one council member in the queue so far, Councilman Flynn. Thank you, Madam Chair. Greg, a couple questions on slide, a little bit, let me go back to it, 10, I believe, that shows the bed capacity and the reduction since our vote in 2019. We've gone down from around 748 beds to after uh, uh, the closure of Core Civic later in the year, uh, or at some point uh, over the next year and a half, we would be down to, it looks like about 255 or so. Uh, but our target capacity is 550. What determines our target capacity? Because previously we were housing well over 550. So why is 550 the new target and not higher? Councilman Flynn's a great question. During this transition, there have been other reentry opportunities that have been developed or expanded within the Department of Corrections. So well, the 550 is not a guarantee that'll be enough. That's a goal we have. Um, given our wait lists and the timeframes people are waiting, we believe that will reduce them to a more manageable level. Um, you, there, there's always a need for some level of wait list just to keep flow in the system, but folks shouldn't be waiting six, nine, 12 months. Right. Folks might wait one to three months. Right, on, on slide 11, the wait list is 294 at, as of, winter, as of uh, February. Mm -hmm. And if you take that 294 on the wait list and we currently have less than, it looks like 400, maybe 420 uh, beds. Uh, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, again, great point, Councilman. Do, do we take uh, clients from other court districts outside of Denver? So let me, let me go back and respond to the first question or point out that we have almost 300 people waiting, but a bed will turn over in seven to nine months time frame. So it's not a full year of a, of a placement of bed. Right. Um, as far as do we review and occasionally accept individuals from other districts, we do, but primarily in the Pier 1 program. It is rare for us in any of our other programs. In fact, because of our wait list, we have turned to partners in other jurisdictions. Um, folks in Jefferson County have been willing to look at some of our placements. Folks in Adams County have been willing to look at some of our placements. Um, so we're, Denver is actually putting a strain on those districts as opposed to the opposite effect. Okay, thank you. Uh, there were three uh, community corrections facilities in my district. Uh, one of them is federal, so it's not, we're not counting it here in the Denver County. It's uh, Independence House Federal Facility, uh, but the others are on the Fort Logan campus. What is the status of those? Councilman Flynn, so um, the Haven was one of those two programs at Fort Logan. Um, and as I mentioned, in December of 23, we've yeah. lost those 36 beds. Uh, Pier 1 is an 80-bed program for men. Right. Um, 
Unfortunately, they have been operating since early 2020 at half capacity um, related to protocols associated with COVID, but now they just can't find staff. So they are having a tremendous difficulty finding individuals to employ in their program, particularly, and I think we see this across the landscape, you know, 24-7 programs require folks to work evenings, weekends, and holidays. And um, it's a difficult climate to recruit the workforce into those shifts. Sounds like an issue with both supply and demand. There's a great demand and there's a low supply. All right. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Councilman Flynn. Next up is Council President Torres. Thanks, Madam Chair. Thank you, Greg. Um, I think the factor during this period of time that 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 all of this adjustment has been making um, are, are taking place that took me by surprise, I think, was the Independence House closure. How many, how many folks were accommodated at that facility? Madam President, the, the, the Independence House Fillmore program, as it was referred, worked with 40 individuals, again, with co-occurring disorder, both a substance misuse and mental health concern. And it was not a decision of its council or, or the city to end that contract. They just couldn't sustain at half capacity for a long time during COVID. And the operator had to make a really unfortunate and difficult decision to close that program. Uh, it's, it's a hope and a goal that as Denver rebuilds its capacity, um, and we think in 24, 25 and beyond, we'll be able to bring back some of those specialized services that we lost. Because what this slide doesn't fully represent is some of the behavioral health services that we had back in, in 2019. So we had 48 beds of IRT, intensive residential mm -hmm. treatment that the Fox facility provided. We had the 40 beds of dual diagnosis that Independence House provided. We had the Haven Therapeutic Community for Women. So we've lost specialized programming in behavioral health services during this four year period as well. Did they keep any other facilities open? Like are they still operating at all? Independence House? Yeah, Independence House still has one facility at uh, 41st and Pecos okay. that works with 75 individuals. Got it. Okay. Um, thank you so much. And um, I know there's conversation, Lisa, that that we've had about a facility um, potentially in my district. Is that on this map or is that not reflected here yet? Yeah, I'd like to ask phone a friend if I sure. could and ask Ms. Lumley to come up here on that. Good morning, Lisa Lumley, Director of Real Estate. Councilwoman, I'm working on a couple other options besides the Dahlia location. So that is a maybe okay. for the one in Europe, but I'm actually looking at something that would not be in your district as well. Okay, and so those those other options are not, because they're not firm, they're not reflected here. Correct, okay. correct. It. As soon as we know more, I make more progress, yeah. then we definitely will come back again. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Council President. Looks like I might have missed someone else coming in the queue. Council Member Sandoval. And then I have a couple questions. We do need to stop at close to um, 11 in order to accommodate our other two items. So I'll go after Council Member Sandoval if no one else has questions. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. So Greg, um, with all of the closures of the William Street, Tooley Hall, Independence House, CoreCivic, Fox, what happens to those buildings? Are they sitting there vacant? Are we, are other, um, service providers looking at them. I know it's private property, but do we know what's happening with those facilities? Um, Council Member Sandoval, so William Street has been uh, torn down and built into condos or townhomes, so that is gone. Um, Columbine, I believe, that is sitting vacant. I'm not sure what the status is. Um, uh, and Ulster was sold, Box was sold to private investors. Okay, so we don't have any of those type of facilities that we can push towards other, because um, when they're, it's hard to, real estate's so expensive in Denver. So it's, it would be easier if we had those type of facilities, even if it's on the market, for other um, vendors to go to besides CoreCivic. So we don't have any of those type of facilities online that we know of. So maybe Lisa can respond and then I'll add in. What I'll say is where we can, I am trying to um, at least have conversation if um, those specific owners 
do not already have other plans in place so that we can take advantage of existing facilities. So I'll just say right now, they're trying to understand and have discussions. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate my colleague asking that question. I think it's really important. Um, we were led to believe previously that um, we would have the opportunity to purchase a facility and then um, that did not occur. And so I'm encouraged to hear that we're in discussions. I'm concerned about the timing of renewal with the other transaction not yet before us. So I guess I'm asking for any reassurance um, that we will be continuing this and then potentially being able to purchase that building. So I, I guess I'm asking, you know, I don't know if there's anyone, you know, here who can provide me more reassurance that we will not be in the same boat we were in the last time. Councilwoman, well, of course, if it's not here, what I can tell you is we have been going back and forth. We have a purchase and sale agreement that has been drafted that has gone back with red lines. I have a call with our attorney today to review some of the red lines they just sent. Um, they have committed to actually doing improvements related to ADA for the restrooms. And they went out and got the estimates for that project so that they would know how to incorporate that within our purchase and sale agreement. So um, I would tell you today that as far as I'm concerned, this is a deal I intend to bring forward. Um, we're planning on the 21st for FinGov. And I don't see at this point any reason why we would not be there. Okay, gotcha. Thank you very much. Um, I think the other question I had, I know that my colleague asked the question about um, the closure of, you know, two other facilities, the, ha the Haven and Independence House, neither of which were decisions by this council. We've talked about staff shortages. One of the other factors that occurred during this time is there was a reduction in demand uh, due to COVID and, you know, there was a slowdown in sentencing, a slowdown in transfers, you know, obviously that changed some of the demand for these beds for a period of time. We've now seen the increase in demand and obviously some changes in sentencing. We're watching the trend with um, a demand for including something our you know, uh, mayor has supported, which is increased sentencing for fentanyl, um, you know, going back to felony charges for fentanyl. And um, it's my understanding that the state sentencing reports are showing an increase in um, prison uh, sentencing under some of those uh, state legislation. I, you mentioned having some um, individuals here from the Sheriff's Department. <coughs> Excuse me, I would just like to ask you or someone from the Department of Safety to just talk about um, what we are seeing in terms of the trends, in terms of the cost of uh, sentencing trends, increasing jail population trends and the cost of having individuals served in our jail. We have a number of individuals right now um, running on platforms of increasing arrests of individuals, <laughs> that that's their answer to crime in Denver. There's a cost to that versus, you know, serving individuals in community corrections. So I'd just like us to have a sense of what the urgency is around this particular um, intervention of community correction beds, because obviously um, there's a bigger context you wanted us to understand, and I just wanted us to fill out the rest of that context before we vote on this contract. Thank you for the question, uh, Councilmember Knees. I don't know that I'm prepared. That's a very complicated, yeah, and I, it's question. a big question. So yeah. it's it's less about maybe the particular data. If you just want to, you know, maybe speak to the larger issues, even if you don't have the numbers in front of you. Yeah, I and I see you have a, another friend joining you at the podium. It's always good to have friends. Um, yes. Let me let me pause. Let Chief Lyon answer, and then I'll add anything. Yeah. Thank you, Madam Chair and Council. Just some brief information to address your question. Um, the, the jail population combined between the downtown detention center and the county jail um, is up over 1,700 again. It has been for some time now, and we're approaching the pre-COVID numbers. In fact, we're, we're really close to what we were at pre-COVID. Um, so, so the pressure on the, the jail system in the city is, is pretty great. Um, on top of that, as council's all uh, well aware, our staffing challenges are something that are um, significant and historic. We're, we're operating at a low 60th percentile for staffing right now. Um, our jail population this morning was at 1704. 
with the 294 folks who are on the two combined wait lists, um, it, it, it could potentially, if enough beds were to open up, reduce our population by over 17%. And so the, the pressure on the jail system is uh, significant. Um, and uh, I appreciate your question to address that. And then also I, just to touch briefly on the cost related to housing someone uh, in the jail system, the last calculation I have, and there may be an updated one from this one, but the last one I have is it's approximately $164 per day per inmate to house someone in the Denver jail system, um, which is a, a substantial number. Um, and if there are any other questions specifically about DSD or the population or cost, I can try to address those as well while I'm here. Thank you very much. As far as your question, Councilmember Knich, of changes in sentencing or the impacts on the prison population related to any recent legislative changes, I don't think that's, that's okay. appropriate to comment on that. I think it's fair to ask. I think it's fair to say that the prison population is beginning to increase. Certainly the number of sentences we've seen to community corrections is increasing. I think that has more to do with the system rebounding from the pandemic and how it was such a major disruption to the flow that it is catching up and it, it's only going to get worse before it gets better, which is, is why I'm really asking for a yes vote to move this item forward. Thank you. All right. With that, I believe we have a motion from Councilman Flynn and a seconder from Councilmember Sandoval. Do we need a roll call vote on this? Or are we ready to move it forward to the full council? We are ready. Okay. With that, it moves forward and we move on to our next presentation, which is the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment um, with a grant for public health infrastructure and workforce. This is an action item, um, ordinance number uh, 23-209. So we'll change presentations. Do you need any help or do you have your presentation ready to go? Um, I believe it should be coming up, I thought. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Please uh, good morning. Yourself. Thank you. Pardon? Sorry. Oh, I, you were probably in the middle of doing it. I'm sorry I spoke over you. Can you please introduce yourself? Okay. Thank you. Hi, good morning, council members. I'm Monday Mason with the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, and I'm here today to share a little bit about uh, a new grant award we have received at DDPHE. We are calling it Phoenix uh, Public Health Organizational Equity Engagement and Excellence. And this is the CDC uh, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention grant. Uh, it's part of a national initiative of the CDC to strengthen U.S. public health infrastructure, workforce, and data systems. Uh, over the next five years, we'll receive over $8.5 million. Uh, the, we were awarded uh, this grant in December, and it will uh, uh, be through November, end of November, 2027. The areas of focus by the CDC are threefold. It's focused on uh, workforce, foundational capabilities, and data and analytical capabilities. DDPHE was only uh, eligible to apply for the first two components of the grant mechanism, uh, workforce and foundational capabilities. I wanted to highlight the graph to your right, which is the foundational public health services. And this illustrates the uh, foundational capabilities or essential services at base that any public health agency in the country should have. I want to dive a little bit deeper into what we proposed in the grant. Uh, specifically, our, our primary goal is to increase and diversify the public health workforce in Denver. We plan to do that through some uh, innovative uh, job opportunities and recruitment strategies providing cross-training opportunities and resources and tools, along with uh, creating a more nimble public health workforce by assigning folks to programs, but also cross-training them so they have a better understanding of emergency response and preparedness. Additionally, we are expect to create career pathways for these new uh, employees. And of course, we'll be evaluating uh, all steps along the way. 
Some of our specific workforce strategies or objectives include um, creating paid student opportunities. We'll be working closely with our academic partners to do this, both at uh, DPS level, but also collegiate levels. We plan to expand our Public Health AmeriCorps and Community Health Worker Apprenticeship Program. We've already onboarded uh, three uh, AmeriCorps, new AmeriCorps members this year. We'll be working or continuing to work with DDO and the, the workforce centers uh, throughout that effort. And we've also created a new classification called environmental public health Te technicians. And we have, are hoping to create new opportunities for people who might be new to public health. So early career professionals that we can um, hopefully recruit from the communities around Denver and to ensure that we are most responsive as possible to community health issues in priority communities. We also will be developing and implementing training plans for these new staff members, but as well as, well as our current staff members. And as I've already mentioned, we'll be creating career pathways along the way. In the component B, foundational capabilities area, our, our focus for foundational capabilities uh, and building our organizational comp competencies are threefold. It's focused on equity, community engagement, and emergency preparedness and response. All of this in order to improve health outcomes. So again, we'll be training staff, uh, new and existing staff, uh, continuing our training as it relates to health equity, racial and social justice, but also providing those cross-training opportunities and emergency response to create um, ways or mechanisms by which people can focus on their day-to-day -day programs, but then pivot when emergencies arrive or arise. Uh, we also know that we can't do this alone. So we'll be working in partnership with uh, community members, community-based uh, organizations, city agencies, of course, and across divisions and strengthening, strengthening those as well. This is a little bit re repetitive, but essentially we'll be uh, developing systems, processes, procedures, policies to uh, continue to strengthen those partnerships and engage community members. And, and, and one way we're doing that is to uh, sustain a lot of the work that we have been doing and building during our CDC COVID health disparities grant. Over the last two years, we are working closely with the Health Equity Community Advisory Group. We expect to sustain the working with, working with those community members to not only uh, inform what we need to be doing, as it relates to COVID in, in key communities around the, the metro area, but we, we also uh, will be engaging them in our community health assessment and community health improvement planning processes, which is a state mandate. We also have included some contractors and consultants within our grant. Uh, we will be partnering as usual with public health Institute at Denver Health, our public health partners, um, and their focus is primarily on immunizations. We know that child and adult immunization rates fell dramatically during COVID, and so uh, they're, in their attempt to increase those rates, they will be, we will all be partnering together to work with community-based partner organizations, as well as local school-based health centers to increase uh, these immunization rates. As I've already mentioned, we'll be working closely with our health equity advisory group and our community organization partners to uh, work with us on a myriad of topic areas beyond COVID uh, and also uh, working with us in our community CHA and CHIP community health assessment and community health improvement planning processes. And as always, we include language access, uh, interpretation and translation services within all we do. Just to provide you a general timeline and next steps of uh, what's taking place at DDPHE. Uh, since we received the uh, notice of award, we have revised and submitted a, a new work plan and budget, which has been approved by the CDC. We're setting up the grant in our city, city, city systems uh, and taking care of those processes. 
We are drafting subcontracts in preparation to work with our con contractors. As I mentioned, we've already onboarded three new Public Health AmeriCorps and Community Health Worker Apprentices. This is actually the second cohort uh, at DDPAT, so we're very excited to continue that program. We are working to retain or recruit our implementation staff. So as required by CDC, we uh, have to hire a grant team. So workforce manager, evaluator, and grant administrator. So we are in the process of doing that. And we're beginning to convene with our internal as well as external partners to share about the, the grant and uh, working together to, to move forward into next steps. Moving into summer, we'll be finalizing those subcontracts and coordinating with our partners, developing the required implementation and evaluation plan that's required by the CDC, developing our training curriculum or continuing to build that out and developing an internal assessment process. Moving into fall, we expect to have hired and onboarded our staff and students, at least our, our first cohorts, uh, engaging partners in these processes and pilot, piloting some of our training curriculum that we're expected to develop. We'll be conducting uh, staff trainings, not only for those new employees, but for existing employees, and especially for those employees who are interested in supervising students and supervising community health worker apprentices, because mentoring and training and supporting on the job learning is really key to what we want to accomplish, because we're not only training the current workforce, but we want to train the workforce of the future, which includes our internship uh, recruitment and onboarding processes as well. With that, I'll pause and ask if you have any questions. There are. Thank you so much. Council President Torres. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mondi. Um, uh, really thrilled about this and thank you for um, sharing um, such, I think, interesting information about how it'll be laid out and um, just looking quickly at kind of the larger national effort that this is part of. Um, CDC awarded $3 billion nationally, right? And so yes. this is a part of what Denver determined we needed help with. So under workforce and um, infrastructure, um, what did we experience during the pandemic that helped us arrive at the goals that, that this grant's trying to, um, trying to address? Yeah, I might ask turn to Megan Parizzo, the Director of Shared Services and Business Operations, as she can speak to that in okay. more detail. Thank you. Great. Hello, everyone. Megan Parizzo, the Director of Shared Services and Business Operations at the Department of Public Health and Environment. Um, I, I sort of following the previous presentation, I think so many of us uh, dealt with a workforce shortage for so many reasons um, during the pandemic. It's caused a lot of, um, I think public health specifically has uh, seen a lot of concern and question about what does it mean to be a public health workforce? I think the emergency response efforts required put a big strain on folks that have been in public health for a really long time um, that have since left the field knowing that they're just exhausted by the breadth of it and what it took out of us. Um, and I also think that those who had an inkling of entering public health workforce paused and, and wondered what that looks like at, after COVID post pandemic. And so I think that's one thing we're bumping up against is just how do we generally entice folks into the field of public health after dealing with such a huge emergency. I would also say that there's some in intrigue as a result of that. There are folks that are curious about public health but had never been exposed to it before. And this is a real opportunity to capitalize on anyone who heard about some of what public health looks like in the news and had never heard what public health is before. Mm -hmm. So wanting to capitalize on that. And at a more local level, I think we're really hoping to be responsive to Denver communities and we want our workforce to represent folks in our communities. And so that's a big <coughs> emphasis of this specific grant and the outcomes we're hoping to achieve is how do we recruit folks that live in Denver, that live in neighborhoods that have experienced COVID directly in our immediate vicinity and how do they help inform our work in a more meaningful way. So making sure our recruitment strategies and our hiring strategies really focus in Denver communities and areas where we want to um, have the greatest impact in our work. I could go on for days. Any Did that touch on some of it or is there yeah. more that I could touch on? Yeah, that's really helpful. So it's um, 
um, I, I just want to hear that it's speaking to directly things that we experienced here and are trying to either um, correct or not. Um, Mondi and I went to the same institution for our, our grad school and um, you know, public health, I think, came to me at a very late stage in my education as an interest area. So I appreciate that. I am interested really quickly in how many new staff will be hired, how many internships you're proposing to do, and will folks have to have already been working in public health to um, uh, qualify for those positions? Yeah, we'll be hiring 10, at least 10 paid student interns each year. Uh, we also have some other supplemental funding, so we're, we're trying to increase those numbers uh, as we're able. Uh, at total, though, over the five years, we'll hire 80 people. Okay, great. And then my last question is, um, uh, who's trained under the training that's developed? Um, is it just the people who are operating under this program? or is it meant for other folks throughout the city? Well, the intent was focused for those folks who are working in uh, public health. Okay. Uh, but to answer your previous question, you do not have to have previous experience to be hired into one of these positions. Great. So we uh, foresee that uh, many of our community health worker apprentices, maybe people who are looking for a career change, they may be uh, new to the field and wanting to explore it, and um, our new classification, the environmental public health technician, is a way to hire uh, folks who may not have, you know, a, a traditional background in public health or even uh, schooling in public health. But it's an opportunity for them to enter the field, and we can provide the training internal uh, to the agency, which is one reason why there's so much emphasis on developing a curriculum and developing that training uh, infrastructure within DDPG. Great, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Next up, Council Member Sandoval. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for this. This is um, important work. So I just have a, a couple questions. On slide three, you have component B, address the most urgent foundational capabilities. What does that mean? Like if you're the public and you're reading that, I don't think necessarily, I think that's a lot of insider jargon. And a lot of times our public does not, the feedback I get from my constituents is we use insider jargon in committee and people don't understand what it means. And so can you break down component B so that anyone who's watching actually has an understanding of what that means? Great question, thank you so much. Um, Yes, in public health and many fields, we use a lot of jargon and acronyms, uh, which is why we included the graphic here to, to look the some of the foundational uh, public health services are related to communicable disease control like COVID or the flu or uh, a, a sexually transmitted infections, et cetera, uh, chronic disease and injury prevention, uh, environmental public health, which has to do with our air, soil and water maternal and child and family health, and uh, access and linkages to clinical care, because we at, at DDPAT don't have a lot of clinical uh, focus in our, our care, but we do link to our partners at Denver Health and Public Health Institute at Denver Health to provide those services. And who are some of your community partnerships? Can you talk about some of the community partners that you would be working with that you have or that you plan to? Sure, uh, we expect that it'll probably be a competitive process. We, uh, however, we do already work with so many community partners uh, and I can share the names of some of those. Um, Lifespan Local, uh, Colorado Black Health Collaborative, uh, Inner City Health, um, Diversified, uh, Nine Health 365, um, trying to think of others, Metro Caring, uh, so we, we uh, through our, out our COVID work and many, many of our programs and BDPAT, we're constantly striving to work in close partnership with partners uh, at the organizational level and community members to, because as I mentioned previously, public health, local public health departments cannot do it alone. And so uh, really those uh, connections to community are critical to what we do. Awesome, thank you. So one other question recruit and hire new staff. In my experience, one of the things that I, I really, I love is land use and you don't see a lot of people of color 
interested in that field. And reflective representation is really important, um, especially in this work. So how do you peel back the layer of an onion and actually get to the people who you want to as reflective representation in these positions so then they're a trusted person in their community um, helping get people the services that you're providing through this grant? Thank you so much for that question. At base, that's what this grant is all about, which is one reason we want to work closely with our community organizational partners and uh, local schools, uh, DPS, and colleges, because we are really thinking critically and, uh, and about how to um, recruit uh, talented people from the neighborhoods in Denver. And so we, our expectation and our hope is really working closely with our community advisory group, as well as community partner organizations to help inform, uh, help recruit, help identify people who might be interested in doing an internship, who might be interested in public health, but don't know a lot about it, but maybe they'd be willing to uh, try out a community health worker apprenticeship program for a year of on the job paid learning and additional training. They'll come out on the end, other end of that as uh, a certified professional who uh, is recognized in the field of public health. Um, also why we are, uh, have created this new classification of uh, uh, environmental public health technicians uh, so that don't require a, a, an undergrad or graduate degree in public health in order to um, be uh, considered for those positions. So we're, we're, we're thinking hard about that. Thank you. That, I think that's important. That. A lot of those barriers exist, especially having a, a degree and maybe you don't know exactly what you want your degree to be. I have a 21 year old and I keep pressing her, what's she going to do with her major? And she's like, I don't know, mom. I don't. And I'm like, we well, have to do an internship. That's the point of an internship is to figure out what you want to do with your degree. And so, but it's hard to get into those internships because they're in college and you don't always meet those qualifications to get city jobs, which the minimum requirement is a college degree. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that you're opening a pathway. One thing um, we all oftentimes talk about high schoolers. I've actually been talking more to junior high schools. So talking to planting that seed a little bit earlier than high school. Um, my son's a senior and to be honest with you, he's not engaged right now. He's kind of checked out. He wants to move on. He's ready to go on to a different pathway. And so just making sure that we have those community partnerships with those schools and oftentimes not always our traditional schools like Emily Griffith is a great opportunity for those as well. So thank you for this work. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't have anyone else in the queue. May I have a motion for this item and a second? Excellent. I have Council President Torres moving and Council Member Sawyer seconding. Um, this is item 2909. Are we good with moving this forward, Council Members? Okay, we are not going to take a roll call vote. This is an exciting grant. It's wonderful to see this infrastructure being uh, bolstered. So thank you for bringing out the information to us today. It will move on to the full council. Our last item today is a contract for an affordable housing loan agreement um, with Shanahan Development, item 228. And um, we have Justin, if you could introduce yourself, please. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, council members. My name is Justin Hill, housing development officer with the Department of Housing Stability. Uh, today, we're bringing a loan for the acquisition of a plot of land located at 1530 West 13th Avenue in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. Uh, potential borrower, Shanahan Development LLC, headed up by Jeff Shanahan. So this land acquisition loan would be used to acquire approximately one and a half acres um, located near 13th and Osage. Project is located within half a mile of multiple light rail stations and just south of the River Mile development. This is currently home of a vacant commercial office building, but redevelopment would include a demolition of that existing building and uh, be the future home of a six-story residential development 
with a minimum of 190 units, 25% of those at three or four bedrooms. Now the developer plans to apply for 4% non-competitive plus state low income housing tax credits in late 2023 or more likely 2024. Construction looks to conclude by 2026 and the building would include 100% electrification, low flow fixtures and uh, Energy Star appliances. But once redeveloped, the project would include units affordable for households earning between 30 and 80% of the area median income with a focus on three and four bedroom units for families. The loan would assist the developer uh, to acquire this land, ensuring a minimum of 60 years affordability on units through a rental and occupancy covenant. The project would also support hosts five year strategic plan goal to create or preserve 7,000 income restricted ownership and rental homes. As previously stated, the borrower is Shanahan Development. The loan would be for $5,557,500 in American Rescue Plan or ARPA funding for a period of 20 years. The loan would bear 1% interest uh, with deferred payments with the full balance due at maturity or refinance. The project also includes developer equity. Post would be the only lender during the acquisition phase in first lien position and secured by a deed of trust. Uh, to summarize, the one and a half acres would be a future home of a six story residential development, parking garage included with 158 spaces. The future financing includes the application for 4% plus state tax credits. Uh, construction concludes by 2026 with at least 190 affordable units serving households between 30 and 80% area median income, 25% of those units at three or four bedrooms. Now we kindly request your approval, approval for the loan between the city and county of Denver and Shanahan Development for $5,557,500 for land acquisition for the future home of an affordable residential development at 1530 West 13th Avenue. Thank you. Uh, are there any questions? I have Council President Torres. Thank you so much. Thank you for the, um, for the info, Justin. Um, a, a couple questions. So you reference, um, this isn't included in the deliverables for the River Mile development, right? You mentioned it in one of the first bullet points, but it's unrelated technically to the development. You're just geographically telling us where it's at. Uh, yes, Council okay. President, it is just, just located to sell. Okay, perfect. Um, the loan using ARPA funds, is it a forgivable loan? Like are we, as long as it's built to these obligations or are we expecting that? We're expecting that back. Yes, Council President. It is not a forgivable loan. It's just a, it's just a deferred loan. So there are no payments due. Um, once tax credits are received, future financing is secured. Um, we will look at it again for possible subordination, possible refinancing. Those options are on the table. Any changes would be uh, subject to full underwriting um, post procedures and subsequent council approval. Okay, okay, thank you. And just thinking about the conversation that you're having with the developer in terms of what they're building, um, they're, this is literally the tracks away from um, kind of the, the residential neighborhood of Lama Lincoln Park. There, there isn't, it's industrial, like, yes. to be very frank. Um, how are they talking about um, creating a space that's inviting and welcoming to residents in a very visibly industrial kind of uh, corridor? Council President, I would ask the developer to speak more about how they are engaging with the community and, and the surrounding neighborhood. Um, are they on? Do we have anybody from the developer team? I don't believe Jeff Shanahan has, has joined us today, but um, you're right, it is industrial zoning. It does allow for residential use to fall under the expanding housing affordability policy. But as far as how it would be developed in that area, I would leave that conversation to the developer and I can follow up with those answers. If, if you can, and if they can as well, that would be great. Um, uh, you know, just thinking about the location in terms of um, walkability, um, what it can access. Um, I, you know, I, I, I know a lot of things are coming to that area. And frankly, there's a campus in between River Mile, which will be residential and this location, um, but it is uh, kind of on the tip of the kind of the Burnham Yard area as well. So I know a lot is kind of 
contemplated for this area, but this will be built sooner than any of those things. Um, so that would be, I would appreciate that, that conversation with the developer. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Council President. Um, I, I'm gonna to look to my colleagues. I have a question, um, if none of them do. I just wanted to clarify the bullet in here says we'll apply for 4% non-competitive plus state low-income housing tax credits. As far as I know, the state income, uh, low-income housing tax credits are very competitive. So they're combined with 4% uh, tax credits, but this, this, the state plus four is very competitive. So I just wanna clarify that. Yes, Madam Chair, it is relatively non-competitive to the, compared to the 9% LIHTC application round, which we just completed in February. So 4%, it is competitive. It has to apply, it has to meet certain criteria, but it will have host support and obviously a high- Yeah, I think we should, I just wanna be very clear. There is something called a 4% tax credit that is non-competitive. It does run out from time to time, but it's not a competitive round. But the state plus four is a competitive round. We should not be referring to it, I don't think, in these slides as non-competitive. It is a competitive round. Projects compete against each other. They're scored. So I just want to be clarifying that this, this project is not guaranteed funding. It will need to compete statewide for um, Colorado Housing Finance Authority funding. Is that correct? Yes, Madam Chair, you are correct. Okay, thank you. So, so it, um, it, it will, you know, that, that's relevant in terms of the timeline. So if it is not successful in the first round, is this contract written such that it has the potential to, um, to have multiple rounds of attempts? Yes, Madam Chair, it is. Uh, the ARPA funding has a distribution deadline of 2026, and we, we worked out that timeline to hopefully have construction completed by then. So there will be no issues regarding the funding and the loan structure with deferred payments and a minimum term of 20 years. We feel comfortable with um, the developer and the application process. Well, I wanna back up because those are two different things. So distribution by 2026 would not have construction completed by 2026. So I just, so you had, so, there's, I just wanna confirm that there's room for multiple scenarios here. One scenario is they're successful in their first attempt for competitive state tax credits. Mm -hmm. And then they you know, get those tax credits in late 23 or early 24, and they complete construction by 2026. That's an optimistic scenario. Or a more you know, conservative scenario is they're not successful in their first attempt. They have to go in Maybe they don't get awarded till 24 or 25, and then construction is not going to be completed as quickly. Is that scenario, does that scenario still work in terms of the ARPA funding? Yes, Madam Chair, we believe that scenario works. So even if construction is not concluded at the early part of 2026, that doesn't endanger the ARPA funding? No, we do not believe it endangers the ARPA funding. It just delays our timeline. Okay, the ARPA funding doesn't have a deadline for use by 2026. It just needs to be committed. Madam Chair, I would have to confirm with finance. Okay. But the, I, the funds would be committed in 2023, so that would not be in question. Okay. I just want to confirm. I have a couple other questions funding with finance, and I they have been pending for quite some time with finance and hosts, so I just want to make sure that this is added to that, just to make sure, because... It's important where our funds are dependent on other, well, I guess, I actually, let me back up. I don't know that they are dependent because our funds are to buy the land and the land will, is, is the land transaction going to close? It's actually not contingent on the funding to build the housing, is that correct? Yes, Madam Chair, the, the purchase sale agreement, um, final date is March 31st, 2023, when a wire at close would occur for the purchase of the land. So I think that actually makes my question moot because if the land is purchased, it's not at risk for the tax credit funding. The housing would need to then get the tax credits to be built, but the ARPA funds will already have been, um, will already have been um, deployed and the land is closed. I just wanna clarify then what is the, um, is there a deed restriction or how are we securing the land for affordability um, upon the, per, uh, the closing of the, the land. So let's just talk about that. And then obviously there's a contingency here. They have to then get the tax credits approved. So talk to me about how the land is being secured. 
Yes, Madam Chair, we are going to, well, secure a rental and occupancy covenant for a minimum of 60 years, okay. which is standard. And then we'll also be first lien position, the only, only lender in the deal, um, in addition to the developer's equity. Okay. And thus we would be the um, first lien position deed of trust, which will secure the land in the city's uh, name. Okay, gotcha. So if it does take them several rounds of tax credits, that's okay because the ARPA funds have already been used to buy the land. So it's not, the ARPA funds aren't being used to actually build the housing in this case. Correct. Okay, talked myself out of that question. All right, at this point, I do not have any other questions. I do not have any other colleagues in the queue. We have a mover, Councilman Flynn, a seconder, Councilmember Sandoval. Do colleagues need to vote on this item? Okay, none, and I'm just making sure we don't have anybody with any questions online. Does not appear that we do. With that, this item moves forward to the full council. That concludes the business we have before this body. Um, we have several items that are on consent, and um, this uh, meeting then is adjourned. Um, we have a uh, committee next week will be our last um, item in the substance misuse series. We have some presentations on fentanyl from DDPHE and um, uh, University of Colorado Anschutz. Um, so we will see colleagues at committee next week. Thank you.